You're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. So you're here with COVID Chronicles. I'm Jenny Rudolph, and I'm talking today with Albert Chan, my friend and colleague who is an anesthesiologist at Prince of Wales Hospital Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care Medicine in Hong Kong. Albert and I have known each other for a number of years, and we thought it would be fun and valuable to talk about our journey together over the last few months during the COVID crisis. So welcome, Albert. Thank you, Jenny. Glad to be here. Albert, when we thought about having this conversation, we started thinking about how intensively we've been working together over the last three months or so. And that all started with your amazing ideas and the important work you were trying to do on infection control and personal protective processes for yourself and your colleagues in the OR at Prince of Wales Hospital. So how did this all get started for you? It started off, I think, after Chinese New Year for us when I came back to Hong Kong and the COVID-19 just started breaking out in China. And at that time, a lot of our you know, staff and colleagues are really nervous about what's going on because, as you know, SARS hit Hong Kong pretty hard mm. in 2003. Immediately, I thought, you know, I've had the training in simulation. That's probably something I can bring to the table that can help our colleagues. And with that in mind, I got involved with the leadership. They bought in and like, okay, you can have the in-situ space for you to run simulations and train our staff. At that time, I think it was really urgent for us in a way because we're so close to the Chinese border in a way, and we were just really anxious to get this thing kicked off and started. So it was kind of in a hurry and kind of in a frenzy. We tried to get things together. I got my team together to work on this, and it has been fun since then. I know it's been fun in a, in a sense that it's bringing together your wonderful skills and background, and I'm sure it's also been extremely challenging in many ways. Yes. So on my side, Albert, I think I was maybe finishing up my morning workout one day or a walk or something, and I got this ping on WhatsApp from you, and you were saying something about you've got to get these simulations together for the OR staff, and did I have any ideas? And of course, immediately I was engaged because I love you and I want to help, and it just seemed like such an important moment. So tell me about what was going through your mind in terms of getting that rolling. I remember me pinging the faculty group about how I'm excited about what I'm going to do about the simulation. You're talking about the Center for Medical Simulation faculty co-development group we have on WhatsApp. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so you pinged our whole group. And then you personally reached out to me and asked me, how are you doing, Albert? I know it's been tough in Hong Kong. You know, is there anything I can help you with? And then, you know, that felt really warm to me and it immediately clicked with me. And I thought, okay, this is awesome. Jenny reached out to me and I 
definitely need help in certain areas, particularly with some of the ideas that I am running through my mind and try to put them into action. So that's how it began for me. I have to say, Albert, it was such a paradoxically joyful process for me working with you. Paradoxically, in that there was such a serious situation, and I really wanted to help you and your colleagues. And at the same time, you know, that sort of started a process of maybe, I don't know, is it two months or something? Yeah. Almost every morning oh, I'd months. get a, <laughs> a, a ping for you on my WhatsApp on what was happening next and what we needed to do together. Yeah. And I guess the joyful process for me is you just brought this marvelous energy of, okay, this is what I want to do next. How should I do it? You know, we can talk in a minute about some of the ways this has played out going forward in terms of writing mm -hmm. a couple articles together based on this. But I think the first thing that really intrigued me was you needed to do it really fast and as well as possible. And I think the challenge that really intrigued me was how could we get kind of just in time, close to mastery learning without a lot of heavy lifting. And so I'm just wondering, that's what was going through my mind as we were trying to design this together, but what was going through yours? Exactly what you're talking about. This is exactly what was going through my mind. I haven't had much experience with this kind of rapid achievement of mastery learning. I'm sure not a lot of people have, but I think that is something that is very imminent given the current situation, you know, how fast the virus is affecting the whole world. Even at the time in, in uh, I think it was Feb February that we started this going on. With that in mind, that's, that's what I set up with my goal of the simulation to be, you know, having the mastery learning or near mastery learning for all the staff. And also at the same time, how to improve our systems to, you know, get prepared for the current pandemic. Yeah, so let's just get really practical for a second, Albert, because I think this might be of interest to others. I know it was certainly interesting and important to me. And by the way, the things that we came up with, I've been feeding into our system at Massachusetts General Hospital. Why don't you just uh, talk a little bit about what you actually designed and how it played out? So we'll just give you a little bit of background. In the OR and in the intensive care, so in the OR, we have around 250 staff, including anesthesiologists, nursing staff, and also some patient care assistants. Intensive care, around six to 70 nurses, and also 20 intensivists as well. So what we aim to do is focus on high yield or high risk procedures, which are aerosol generating procedures including intubation. So we focused on that part for the mastery learning because according to our SARS experience, again, you know, this is one of the areas which may put healthcare workers at highest risk. With that in mind, we developed some of the materials and the instructional methods that we're gonna carry out this simulation. And I wanna just clarify that because of the time pressure, what we ended up designing was not strictly mastery learning, but we were trying to support your colleagues in getting near to mastery. And so we had to cut some corners here and there. And I, and I just wanted to make sure we said that. What we designed was that for each group, we're going to have the real intact teams that they work in, in the operating theater, for example. So it would involve one anesthesiologist, one to two nursing staff, and also the patient care assistants. Because the aim is we try to keep the 
number of people managing the airway to minimal because we don't want to infect people with too many staff in the room. The situation is inside you, and we have the authentic teams as we talked about. And before they go into the simulation, we created two videos, one of an ideal behavior and one of a not so ideal behavior. And what we did was that before they went in the simulation, we kind of used these videos to activate their prior knowledge and also guide them through some discussions on what went well or what didn't go so well in these two simulations. So Albert, I know you're uh, pursuing a master's in health professions education right now at Maastricht in your infinite free time. Right. And uh, <laughs> when we talked a bit about the design of this process, you mentioned a number of different ideas, including meaningful learning, creating psychological safety, and what you were trying to do there, I think, with those videos was get people tuned up kind of mentally through some vicarious learning, yeah. um, being able to think about things without having to worry about the PPE and the physical movement and all those other things so that they could cognitively get it first yeah. and then jump into the sims. But I wasn't there when you were actually doing it. So tell me a little bit about how that played out and what you think the benefits of that video first, then rapid cycle deliberate practice process was. It's also interesting for me because I've done a lot of simulations or insight simulations for our staff. One thing I noticed compared to when I was doing my fellowship at Center for Medical Simulation when I was a visiting scholar in 2016 was that the clinical staff in Hong Kong aren't very vocal in when you debrief them. So sometimes it takes a lot of time to get them activated and motivated to speak, you know, get the frames or what they think. But interestingly enough, using these videos actually got them very engaged in discussions, even before the simulation. I think that's a kind of a side effect that I didn't expect with this. It, it goes hand in hand with how we did the video and how we led the discussions um, for these videos, but I think it's really interesting as well. So it's so fascinating that the video served as a bit of an icebreaker. Where my mind goes with this is you're a Hong Kong native who did your education here in the United States, Exeter in New Hampshire, and then you went to Stanford for your undergrad and then went back eventually to Hong Kong. And part of what you're talking about is a challenge that I think many of us face who try to spur teaching and learning in different cultures, which is how do you bring people with a more reticent, potentially authority-deferring style into a conversation? And it sounds like videos really worked to bring your colleagues into it. Do you have any thoughts about how that happened? Why? With the videos, we're not putting them on the spots immediately. They're the assessors of someone's, someone else's behavior. And in our culture, it's easier to talk about others than about ourselves. Well, it may not be only our culture. But I think that actually got them you know, more interested in talking about, you know, okay, what I would do differently if I were doing the same scenario. That might be how it worked. And plus, plus you know, we did a lot of work in building that psychological safety and talking about, you know, we are doing these to help facilitate you to make it safe for you when you have to manage these cases. So I think that all came hand in hand. Albert, if I could build on that a little more. So we're kind of talking about 
the design of a simulation plus debriefing process that has to be just in time, relatively efficient, and help people move toward near mastery of airway situations in a high risk situation where there's aerosolizing COVID-19 potentially. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about as I work with my colleagues at MGH and talk with people around the world who are trying to prepare and rehearse is there's something really important about the relational aspects of this coming together via conversation, via simulation, that we're somehow strengthening our connections with each other, which I like to think may reduce people's anxiety a bit. You know, there's something about empathy for other people that can cause self-regulation in yourself. It reduces your own anxiety. Maybe there's something about knowing that I've already done this with these people that makes me feel more safe and interdependent with them. What do you think about all that? Obviously, I don't have any hard data on this, but just from a person who has done these simulations with all these staff, I think they do feel more comfortable in these situations, knowing that you know there's what to expect. That's one thing from our education. But I think I agree with you. There's something that's about the relationship either from me with the staff or the staff with each other during or after the simulations that seem to bond them better. So if they have to face a similar situation, they know that, you know, they have each other's back. They have each other's support. Uh, we've discussed this, you know, this kind of collective competence in a way that we're helping each other to be better. So we've talked a bit about that video conversation you did prior to the actual simulations. Could you tell us a little bit about the modified rapid cycle deliberate practice that you did and how that played out in your view? After the videos, we would brief the staff and then they would do a few tasks, including donning of PPE and then going into the scenario and managing an airway and then the doffing of the PPE. So we included a little bit of Betsy Hun's idea on rapid cycle deliberate practice. And the aim is, again, near mastery learning, although I know it is not the perfect setting for that. So it's a lot of repetition of tasks that we would like them to perfect themselves in. For example, you know, how to stand by the ventilator when you're ever doing an airway manipulation, identifying which are the clean and contaminated areas in the operating theater. So we ask them to repeat tasks, practice, and then give them feedback and then practice again. And that's how we try to build this. I'm thinking of shifting our conversation now to talk a little bit about what you spurred in terms of getting me and some others involved in writing up this work. Is that okay with you? Yeah, sure. You did two things here. One was you codified the processes that you had come up with your, with your colleagues at Prince of Wales Hospital into a very clear graphically well-displayed infographic that you posted on Twitter and immediately got absorbed and disseminated around the world. And you started a process of writing that essentially free open access medical education, healthcare education process up. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you started another pathway of writing up the simulation process itself and its outcomes. I have to say that 
being involved with you in both of those efforts was so helpful for me at a very difficult time because it made me feel like I was actually helping out, you know, as an organizational behavior scholar. I sometimes wonder what can I do, and I realize bringing my education background and my psychological safety and how do we connect as humans background can actually be helpful. But you gave me a very concrete way to help you, who I care about, but also the broader community. So I thought it might be fun for us or useful for us or, I don't know, rewarding to talk about how that connection process worked for both of us. Yeah, certainly. You want to thank you for all the contributions you have. Well, both in the design of my work and also writing up these things because, you know, I, I'm not really a scholar myself, so I haven't had much experience in doing this, but this, is, this has been a great process and learning process for me as well. And we can talk more about that. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and the thanks go absolutely both ways, Albert. It was, I'm sure, as rewarding for me. What, what was most meaningful for you there? Well, I think going back to the infographic, the initial process of just getting it out there, designing it, putting what we have learned throughout simulations and past experiences into a adaptable infographic, I think is has been really re rewarding in itself because I felt that you know, this is something that can truly help all those around the world who may not have had the expertise or have had the experience in the past. Now, of course, a lot of people are doing a lot of wonderful things. But at the very early stages, I think everybody was really unsure about you know, how to go about these things. So I'm glad that you know, a lot of countries, a lot of institutions have kind of used this to build upon the current work and that that is rewarding in, in one way already. Well, and it was so helpful, I think, Albert, to so many people because it was almost like an informational life raft at a time when others of us were kind of behind where you were in the process. And it was so helpful, I think, and wonderful that Chris Nixon jumped on board and really supported your dissemination of that and posted it to Life in the Fast Lane, which yeah. I think really amplified your message. And I think that's part of the connection and helpfulness of the new world of social media dissemination of clinical knowledge, clinical processes. And of course, Chris and his team have been, you know, leaders in that for years. I think that was another springboard, both content-wise, getting it out. But also, I think, I know for me, and I think observing you, it was really encouraging. Which is why this is so interesting to me how, personally, I haven't been really engaged in the FOAM Twitter world, FOAM as in free online access medical education, which got me thinking, okay, this is something interesting. Is there some signal to it? Which is why I got everyone involved, you, Chris, the, my department chair, Gavin, and also Anna involved in writing up this piece, we think might help others if they want to have such a impactful social media disseminated information, you know, how to do that or what are the pitfalls of doing such a thing? Speaking of the pitfalls, Albert, I think it might be interesting to chat about one challenge we faced, which was even as we were helping others form teams in the OR using simulation, we were an ad hoc team writing this article. You, your colleagues at Prince of Wales Hospital, Gavin Joint, the department chair and others, me, I have a very particular way of writing and a commitment to a kind of punchy lead-in style in my articles. 
And I think that came up against a approach that Gavin has, which I think is a bit more measured and comes out of you know many years of experience that he's had. And I recall a moment where there were these WhatsApp messages furiously going back and forth between you and me about, I think, a clash that you got stuck in the middle of. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So it has been really challenging, as you mentioned, because I'm working with all these really wonderful, bright, smart people who have a lot of experience in publication, where I'm kind of a... I, I am the first author, author in a way, but I am very inexperienced in these aspects. And I do try to pull the expertise from everyone, but the expertise may be slightly you know, different in their opinions. So every time I get an idea, I'm like cringing, like, which way should I go? And in a way, it's a little, <laughs> bit, <laughs> it's a, it's a little bit difficult for me at the time because I don't want to offend anyone. I think everyone's ideas are great, but how do I bridge everybody's understanding and interest? Because this is, as you said, an ad hoc team. And you've never met Gavin. Gavin have never met you. You've met Chris, but you know there's still these uncertainties about this relationship, which is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I think this kind of pushed you, if I may characterize it this way, you can amend what I'm saying into kind of a leadership and mediation position, mm -hmm. because I had a pretty strong stand. I shared with you that I think, you know, clear academic writing is a as the difficult conversations people would say, an identity issue for me. Right. So you can kind of run up against my more rigid, self-advocating side um, yeah. there. And at the same time, I suspect, though I don't know Gavin yet, it was a bit of the same for him. Mm -hmm. And so you had to mediate between these two more senior colleagues. Yeah. How did you find your way? So I think I actually went back to what I learned at CMS. <laughs> And that is have the basic assumption because it's easy to fall in a trap like, ah, oh, they're just on their high horses, they're the ego, <laughs> they don't want to listen to each other. But then I thought to myself, okay, everyone is intelligent, they want to do the best, and we're going to work with that here. So, you know, in a way, I just tried to talk to each party, I mean, you or Gavin. Chris and just let them know what the others are thinking. It's 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 harder, honestly, without the direct conversation in the debriefing, for example. But you know, I do try to honestly tell them, okay, you know, these are what we, they're thinking. This is what you're thinking. Can we come to a kind of you know middle ground in a way? I tried. I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm successful, but hopefully, everyone came out you know, on good terms. <laughs> What do you think about that, Jenny? Yeah, I think, I think you did a really great job because I think you shared with me what were Gavin's concerns and interests, and I suspect you shared with him what were my concerns and interests. And I think you ended up pulling down a middle road that you know, we could both live with, which specifically was the very first paragraph of the article was not the one I would have wanted, but I could live with it. Yeah. And then the rest of the introduction was in many ways, one that I was happy with. So I think, you know, and I think not only that, you know, again, I can't speak for Gavin, but you really got me laughing at myself. And, you know, you and I talked about this as a, as a developmental thing for you as a, as a new first author in this context. So 
you know, you can hear the smile in my voice now. I, I, it was just very positive for me, and I think you took a really nice leadership and mediation role there. Albert, I think, you know, thinking of, you know, moving toward the end of our conversation here, I'd love to just end with talking a bit about what was this process of, you know, designing these sims, writing up this article about social media and dissemination of ideas, and then writing up another article about um, the simulation learning process itself. What was that like for each of us at this particular moment of managing the stresses and strains of COVID-19? You know, we both have families. Uh, we both have other work obligations. What would you say about that? I think it's, it's kind of conflicting for me because, well, I'll tell you a little bit about, about my situation right now. Yeah. I'm working in Hong Kong, and my family, I actually asked them to, my family being my wife and my five-year-old son and three-year-old daughter, um, we actually, she actually brought them to Singapore at the yeah. very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was right after Chinese New Year, which coincides with when I started all these activities. So in a way, I had a lot of time to focus on my work. I have some peace of mind because I know that I might be exposed to patients at my institution or my daily work. And not them not being in the house near me, I'm, I won't be worried about infecting them in a way. And Singapore is really safe currently. But the, you know, the struggling part for me is that I do really miss them. And not being, be, being able to see them every day is kind of frustrating in a way for me mm, sometimes. At least we have you know, technology now that can kind of, kind of keep, keep us connected, but it's still not the same. So that's that's been my struggle in these past couple months. And of course, the daily stresses of work. Although we don't have a huge number of cases at our hospital, it's still just, you know, the training, the anticipation, the preparation, managing other staff and their morale as well, which is challenging. Yeah, and I think my situation quite different. You know, I'm in a Center for Medical Simulation, which is physically separate from the Harvard Teaching Hospitals but we venture back and forth to do a variety of things. You know, we have different challenges at this point with figuring out how do we uh, continue to contribute to people's well-being and, and learning at a time when, you know, our standard courses are not happening and we're working with our colleagues within the hospitals trying to help them with readiness and rehearsal on, you know, in situ. You know, I think for me, the process of, connecting with you and, and other colleagues in a way that I might not normally, you know, often by WhatsApp or text or video chat has been really wonderful. But our specific connection on these projects, I think having the momentum of, you know, kind of looking forward to my daily ping from Albert and what's he going to ask me to do next and <laughs> how can I help has really helped me uh, at this time. So I really thank you for that, Albert. Thank you, Jenny. They're wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Albert, let me uh, let you have the second to last word here. Any any thoughts, any takeaways, anything you want to kind of wrap this up with? I do feel that these have been challenging times and months, I think, for certainly everyone around the world. But I think there's definitely some good that came out came out of this. 
for example, our relationship, you know, flourished over these past two months. I like to think that. <laughs> um, plus agree, all these yeah. ideas that we have come up with, I think, really helped my own learning, even with conflict management or how to write a paper or how to help other staff. You know, there are a lot of things that I've been learning. Well, thank you, Albert Chan. So great to have you with us from the Prince of Wales Hospital in Hong Kong. As one of my other colleagues in the simulation world, Lon Setnick, who's at the Concord Hospital in New Hampshire, in Concord, New Hampshire, said, you know, never waste a good crisis to change things or learn things or get things done that you might not normally be able to get done. And without diminishing the serious challenges that this time has posed for all of us, especially healthcare workers on the front line, I do think it's also caused the opportunity for people like you and me to come together and do things we might not normally. So thank you, Albert, for being with me on this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedsim.org.